Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to be reflecting upon the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. And this is a continuation of Jesus, of uh, Matthew's handling of Jesus' parables. It's the last part of the uh, section on parables in Matthew's gospel. And they're all kind to, to struggling to allow people to catch a glimpse of the reality of faith. You know, it's very easy sometimes for it all to be pie in the sky. It's, it's kind of very easy for it sometimes to all be make-believe and separated from the struggles and the experiences that all of us have, you know, day to day in our lives and year to year as we discover both ourselves, our destiny, our hopes, our dreams, and so forth. And so the parables are trying to show us in a way the destiny to which we're called and the means by which we arrive at where we are called. In other words, to arrive in what the parables usually are calling the kingdom. And the kingdom simply means the fullness of the presence of God. I think that we go back, I, I think some background is important. I think we go back and we say, in the book of Genesis, which reveals to us basically not only who God is as creator, but actually reveals us to ourselves. Who are we? What, what does it mean to be a human person? And in Genesis, we find the, the Holy Spirit speaking to us and telling us, well, what it means to be a, whole, a human being is that you are created in the image and the likeness of the divine. And so we say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the image and the likeness? Does it mean that we look like God or God looks like us? What, what does this mean? Well, the word image in the Old Testament is a very powerful word. And it usually is used in a very negative sense. It usually is used in the sense of people creating idolatrous gods, idolatrous creatures. Because the image and the reality are somehow intimately connected. There's not really a good word to say what that intimate connection is. Does it mean we are them and they us? No. Does it mean that somehow or other we're a reflection of something? It means more than that. So it, it means that there is some form of participation of the image and that which is an image of, which means that to be a human being means that there is inherently within us from creation itself some kind of intimate relationship with the divine being which is part of who we are. There's, uh, there are many, you know, th theological, uh, if, if, you, if you take maybe um, the, uh, the Thomistic approach, uh, there's something like the analogy of being, where it means we're something like that but not that. If you want to take a little bit deeper step, then then you, you find that in some of the medieval theologians, uh, especially in Scotus, there's, there is you participate in the same entity, but to a radically different degree. Um, if you want to go to some of the more modern theological reflections, they make a distinction between Yahweh and Elohim from, from the Old Testament. And we participate in Elohim 
um, not in Yahweh, and then we say, what's the difference of that? The difference really is one is being and one is the activity of being. So is there a clear answer? No, there is not. Is there adequate discussion, ample discussion? Yeah, there is. But what it does mean is that we are not just one of the animal kingdom. It means there's something inside of us which participates somehow or other in the creator, in the divine being who lies at the foundation and the root of the whole created order as origin and as source. That's what it means. Is that clear? No. Can it be clear? No. It is something that we will only realize, only come to know, only come to understand when it reaches its fruition in the destiny of the human person, which is to be united with the living God for all eternity. So we live with ambiguity, and those who want, you know, a clear black and white answer to the definition of human nature, well, it isn't there. We can force one and uh, be comfortable with it and be happy with it, but it is not a clear answer. Our relationship with God exists in the realm of ambiguity, exists in the realm of ambivalence, exists in the realm of mystery. However, the core is that there is a relationship not created from only outside of ourselves, but inherent within our very created being itself. So, when Jesus then uses the parables, what he's doing is he's asking us to take our humanity, to integrate that humanity into the everyday life as we experience it and as we live it, and in the midst of that, find our truth, our identity, our source, and our destiny. In other words, seek where we have come from and seek where we are going in the mysterious outpouring, in the mysterious unfolding of our life as it is on earth, our life experience. And so when we have this in mind and we know that Jesus is working with this concept in the parables, then what we can do is go back to the gospel for the Sunday and Jesus says to the crowds, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which someone has found. He hides it again and goes off happy. He sells everything he owns and he buys the field. Well, there's a background to this. Certainly, you know, that as the ancient civilizations of the Middle East, that if you're plowing a field, you, there is not unusual for you to find some kind of ancient artifact, some kind of ancient treasure. And by law, actually, what is on your land belongs to you, so you have the right to keep that artifact. Here, the presumption is that this is not the owner of a field, but this might be a sharecropper, or this might be a hired hand. He finds it, and then he goes and buys the field, so the treasure that he finds is his own. An everyday life experience in the ancient Middle East, an everyday understanding for what human nature does. We find, for instance, a great treasure, and we then begin to desire to possess it, to own it, to have it. And Jesus has said here, well, the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's like a treasure that you find in a field. And then what you do is you, it's, it's worth everything for you. You give up everything to achieve it, everything to obtain it. And so it's an encouragement 
It's an encouragement to see embedded in the field of our world the presence of Jesus Christ, the presence of the kingdom, and then to do all in our power to be able to possess that treasure, to be able to have that as part of our lives. In this sense, then, Christianity, or the sake of eternal life, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of salvation, is worth everything we have. Part of the struggle that we have is getting rid of what holds us back from possessing it. Now, this is true here. It's, it's a question of money. In our lives, it's a question of the things that we don't want to spend, the questions of our desires, the questions of our immediate goals, all of those things which seem threatened in a way. If we are to give all of that up to seek the kingdom of God, and so we see this long struggle in the church of those, you know, we proclaim as saints, those who win the battle, those who really do kind of just strip themselves of everything that they have and cling ferociously to the presence of God in their lives. We have these examples, probably one of the greatest examples, some cultural examples for us is St. Francis of Assisi who his whole idea of poverty was not to idealize want and hunger and all of that kind of stuff. That's all Francis is saying, that in his poverty there is the freedom, the freedom to seek God above all things because nothing holds him back. We have all sorts of cultural examples where that insight is in a very kind of shadowy sort of way an intuition of the human spirit. For instance, in the, in the 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who says, you know, that freedom is not to possess anything, and says that civilization is what destroys the freedom of the human person. And we find a whole literary uh, movement coming out of that, the noble savage movement, the Fenimore Cooper's uh, The Last of the Mohicans, for instance, or uh, the story of Robinson Crusoe, or all of those kinds of things, stories where, where there is somehow or other this freedom from civilization which allows us then to, to seek that which really matters, even in the drug hard rock culture of the mid-20th century. You've got, you know, the song, uh, Janis Joplin's song, Me and Bobby McGee, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. It's an intuition, humanity knows this. They know that their freedom lies in seeking something beyond what they're able to merely and purely possess. Now, it is Francis, of course, who articulates that most clearly for us historically in the light of Christianity and the revelation of the gospel. But we ourselves also know that how many times in our own life, we're, we're believers, how many times in our own lives do we choose things which we know are an obstacle to our own perfection, to our own attaining that union with the living God that is held out to us as a great treasure, as a great gift? How many times do we choose something other? And if we're honest, we know it's frequently and constant, and we know it lasts through the years of our lives as we begin and try as best we can to understand what that means. That's one of the blessings of old age, actually, is that it becomes the point 
where you begin to willingly let loose, um, simply because you can't hang on any longer. And so old age can be a very purifying experience for us. And while we're young and strong and, and achieving and all of that, we look on, on old age or the weaknesses of old age as, well, isn't that a shame? No, it's not a shame. It's, it's moving toward freedom. It's moving toward releasing, clinging to the things of this world in order that we might be able to focus more deeply on the treasure that we find in the fields of our lives. And then Jesus says, again, the kingdom is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and when he finds one of great price, he goes and sells everything he owns, and he buys the pearl. It's the same image. It's the same thing, the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price. It is a treasure that is worth everything to achieve, to possess, to own, to have within our realm, our lives, our experience. And so the treasure and the pearl of great price, both of those things are, of course, in this parable, the achieving of the kingdom of heaven, the achieving of this union with God, or we might even say reunion with God, that gives this life experience that we have had great meaning, great purpose, fills us with a hope and a sense of destiny. And then he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea that brings in a haul of all kinds. When it is full, the fisherman hauls it ashore, and then sitting down, they collect the good ones in the basket and throw away those that are, are of no use. And so now it's going to be expanded now it isn't just this personal quest. It isn't just plowing the field. It isn't just the merchant looking for the pearl. Now, once again, now what happens is that Jesus now steps beyond the individual and begins to talk about the communal. The image of, of who is casting the net. The church is casting the net. The disciples are casting the net. Where is the net going? They don't go through the world and say, well, we want this one, but we don't want this one, and we want, but not this one. We desire all people to come, and we live with the ambiguity of good and evil. And we live, for instance, with this idea when Jesus, for instance, in the Gospels, when he goes and he dines with sinners, with prostitutes, with task collectors, and so forth, and, and the Pharisees who are obeying the law because they have reduced the, the, the language of prophecy to law, and so they're obeying it to the letter in a righteous and mean-spirited sort of way, in a way that makes them better than everybody else, and they're saying, well, look who he associates with. Jesus is saying right here, that's what we do. We want everybody. We want the good, of course, but we'll also take the bad. And when we live with this ambiguity within our community and within our life of this mixture of saint and sinner, then we know, for instance, the struggle of humanity becomes somewhat to us then clear. I think sometimes, um, just out of real interest, I'll listen to some of the, uh, the TV evangelists and a lot of the, the Catholic TV evangelists also. And the thing that my censors are always attuned to is the superiority or the singularity or the isolation of the spiritual, of somehow or other over-spiritualizing our life. And either we either over-spiritualize it 
in the sense of trying to do away with the existential world in which we live as part of our perception and think that we see everything only in terms of the kingdom of heaven or that somehow or other our emotions will, will substitute for the substance of our lives. You know, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying basically that we are a mixture of good and evil, that we are a mixture of strength and weakness, and that it is real strength when we can carry the weaknesses of others, and it is a hopeful weakness that desires to attain to the strength of those who carry us. So the church is a mixture, and I think that we've seen that before with the weeds and the wheat. The evil, the sinfulness is among us, exactly as it was in the realm of the Lord Jesus Christ, exactly as it was condemned by the Pharisees, so we are condemned for the weaknesses from those who are righteous, who are wrongly righteous, for those who are self-righteous. We become, in a sense, then looked down upon. Well, you know, you know how they are. Look at them, you know. And I've heard this too. You know, you drink at your festivals and, and, you know, and that's dangerous. And I know some Catholics and they do this and they do. And our answer to that is, yeah, we do. And yeah, it is true. Because we're a pilgrim people. We, we don't pretend that we have attained perfection. We don't pretend that we've entered into the kingdom of heaven. We don't pretend. We simply live our pilgrimage way. We strive to repent. We strive to be holy. We strive to do the right thing. We try to, to lift each other up. We try to carry each other. We try to be a people kind of stumbling along through history and through time with a goal and a purpose, however, which is to make room in this pilgrimage of faith, to make room for those who need help, to make room for those who are too weak for the journey, to make room for those who will allow us to grow ever deeply in our own understanding of human nature, our own appreciation of both the weaknesses and the strength of a human person, that we don't just, we don't just celebrate how great they are, but, but we're sensitive to the weaknesses, we're sensitive to the failures, and our task is to, to help them also understand those own weaknesses and strive and desire to get out of it and to get beyond it. But Jesus says, and when he says this, but this is how it's going to be at the end of the world, at the end of time. The angels will take care of the final culling of the herd, the final distribution of judgment of the good and the evil. That's not our job. Our job is to include them. Our job is to allow them to become part of us in order that that not only do we come to understand more deeply our own faults and our own weaknesses, but also that those whose weaknesses and faults might be greater than our own might be able to, to be able to see theirs and together help one another into the kingdom of God. It's not a winnowing process whereby, well, you know, we're going to have the, finally, we're going to sit down and we're going to get rid of all the undesirables and, uh, and then it's just us righteous ones that are going to go on. I've seldom seen those who are righteous in that kind of a situation to be, uh, to conform to the sense of righteousness that one finds in the gospel. And then Jesus says, and he, he says to them, but he also, he looks at us and he says to us then too, 
oh, do you understand all this? Do you understand? Do you know what I'm saying? And they said to him, yes, we, we, we get it. Yes, we understand it. And so he said to them, well then, every scribe who becomes a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out from his storeroom things both new and old. Now, that's kind of a perplexing line. I, I would say, what, what does this mean? Basically, it's a story, I suppose we could use the word of the inclusivity of divine revelation that begins in the earliest days, and is certainly from the days of Abraham on, when God begins to reveal himself in time to those who he selects, not as an exclusive group, but as the mustard seed, as the yeast and the flour, as the ones who are going to, through their own human struggles to believe in the self-revealing God, they are the ones who are going to open the eyes of others to the same God, to close themselves off into an exclusive community that does not leave the passageways open into the lives of other people that they might share in some of these gifts and some of this glory. That's not what this is saying here. This is saying you can now interpret the old as the sign, as the sign of understanding. I know that it was not so long ago, um, Benedict XVI made the observation that, you know, the fullness of the Old Testament is seen in Jesus Christ because he is the fulfillment of the Torah, he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and that it's best to look through him to the past to understand what they are anticipating, who they are looking for, because then it arrived, and so forth. Immediately, of course, some German theologians say, well, he's anti-Semitic, which is absurd because this is exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. He told them in the scriptures, well, there were no scriptures except what we call the Old Testament and the days of Jesus. And so when he's saying he went back and told them everything in there that pointed to him, this is exactly what he's saying. He, on the road to Emmaus, went back and took the old and then interpreted in light of the new in order that there would be a greater depth of understanding. The prophets are still very relevant to us. The prophets are still very much of the, of the faith life of the Christian people. The fulfillment of those prophecies is the dawning of a new light. It is where you go into the storeroom. Not only do you pull out the Christian experience, but you pull out also the Hebrew experience and see how those two are intertwined and one fulfills the other and they are a complete whole in and of themselves to where there is one Bible and not two, you know? And if someone says, well, that's, that's anti-Semitic, well, it's not anti-Semitic. It's being very respectful of the Old Testament, but it's also a statement of faith in line with what Jesus says on the road to Emmaus and what the Christian people have always believed, that there is this dynamic from the days of Abraham to the days of the second coming of Christ. There is a journey. There is a pilgrimage. We're on that pilgrimage. We are the ones. Are we all saints? No. Are we all sinners? No. Are we a little bit of both usually? Yes. And yet, together, helping one another to see more deeply into the reality and the mystery of our faith. What is that? But that is exactly the experiencing of the mustard seed growing into the bush, of the yeast bringing this life into all of the flower, this, this core, this seed, which therefore is supposed to extend and expand far beyond itself in something so wondrous and great that all humanity 
obviously, ultimately, is going to have the opportunity to be part of the great revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the great salvific work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is using those who have received the faith to save, to help, and participate in the salvation of the world. That's the Catholic vision. That's who we are. We are not simply a small, isolated community of saints who sit righteously in judgment over the rest of the world. We are the ones on the pilgrimage. Uh, Father, Father Hugo Rahner uses the church as the dusty pilgrimage of the desert, he says, and uh, struggling along from age to age to age, never in glory and splendor, or if so, it's dangerous but humbly and trustingly in the living God, do we cling to the hope and do we cling to the word and do we cling to the promise and do we struggle on to the end, helping and carrying one another, those who are stronger helping the weak and those who are weak and growing stronger in this journey that we share together. This is what this parable is all about. This is what these parables are all about. This is what Jesus is trying to explain to us in the imagery of everyday life. And it is in the experience of everyday life that we come to the realization of what the Lord is saying to his people. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Yeah.